As you leave the city of Neverwinter and head north along the Sword Coast, you come across the quaint village of Deerward. It's a small village full of people who are quite content to live their quiet lives, avoiding everything that has to do with the adventures of Neverwinter, except for their money. Here in this town, you find the buildings are dilapidated and yet homey. You also find a tavern owned by an old dwarf named Madmeal Pebblearmor and his halfling friend Torin Bilberry. There's a small sign hanging from it in the shape of a goat head. Written around it is the name the Waiting Horn Tavern. As you enter, they find that they have a fine selection of ales, along with a basic menu of foods aimed at helping a weary traveler with a few gold or copper to spare. There are several booths around the sides of the room, a few scattered tables around the middle, and the bar itself is at the head of the room where the kegs of ale are tapped and ready for the barkeep. Torrin Bilberry to pour into your tanker. There's a door to the left that heads back into the kitchen. And as you, young traveler, enter the bar, you see a pair of adventurers sitting in a booth off the right side of the bar. And the older of them waves you over and invites you to sit and pushes a tankard of ale in front of you. Ah, I see you got my note, he says and you found your way to the tavern. I bet you were wondering why you were here. But then again, perhaps not. This is a very particular place that attracts a particular crowd. Most of those are about to enter an adventure like you are, or they just have the need for a good ale. This here is your beginning of a great adventure into the world of Dungeons and Dragons. Come. Come, weary traveler, sit a while, while we share with you the secrets and tales of the worlds you can find and experience through the magic of storytelling, through the voice of me, your dungeon master, and players in this game. Okay, welcome back, Traveler, to the Waiting Horn Tavern. Now, as you remember from last time, we were going over one by one some of the more details of the level one side of each one of the classes here. And we're continuing on doing the same thing this week, but we're starting off with the Druid. Now, we've already covered the Barbarian, the Bard, and the Clerics. Now we're continuing on. Now with the Druid, your hit points are decided by using a d8 you would roll the d8 just like with the other ones and then you would get your hit points the eight plus your constitution modifier for your first level and then at levels after that it is the d8 or five whichever one you know you want to go with plus your constitution modifier now your proficiencies you're proficient when it comes to armor in light armor medium armor and shields the druids usually don't use or wear armor shields made out of metal it'll be more like um, like a wooden shield, leather armor, things like that. It's usually not metal that they'd be using. 
And now for your weapons, you're usually proficient in things like clubs, daggers, darts, javelins, maces, quarterstaffs, you know, more like the, the more simpler type weapons, even up to like scimitars, sickles, slings, things like that. And you usually are proficient in tools such as like the herbalism kit. Now, your saving throws would be intelligence and wisdom. That's where you'd have your proficiency there. And then for your skills, you can choose two to be proficient in from like arcana, animal handling, insight, medicine check, nature, perception, religion, and survival. And for your starting equipment, you can choose once again your actual equipment to choose to start off with, or you can start off with money to then buy it later on. But if you choose to go starting equipment, you usually have a wooden shield or a simple weapon, a scimitar or a simple melee weapon, leather armor, an explorer's pack, and a druidic focus. Now, so as a druid, you know druidic, which is the secret language of druids. And you can speak that language and use it to leave hidden messages. You and others who know this language automatically spot such a message when it's there. And others spot the message's presence if they actually do a successful wisdom or perception check, but they can't decipher it like you can unless they have the help of magic. Now, as a druid, you have spellcasting ability just like a lot of the other races here do, or sorry, classes do as well. Now, for your spellcasting note, you draw on divine essence of nature itself, and you can cast spells that shape that nature, that essence, to what you want. Now, if you want to get a full list of these, go ahead, check out that player's handbook again, chapter 10. We'll give you all the rules for it. That's just a reminder for that. And chapter 11 in there has the complete list of the druid spell list as contained in the player's handbook. Now, if you go into other resources, you'll find more, but that's the, the basic list you can choose from right there. And at first level, you'll actually know two cantrips of choice. And to remind you what cantrips are, that's spells you can cast without using up a spell slot. So it's almost like an unlimited number of times you can cast it. Well, if you have ones that have a spell cost of a spell slot, you can only cast it for the number of spell slots you have. Now, you learn additional druid cantrips of your choice at higher levels and those are all right there in the table of the, the spelled for the druids right there in the player's handbook now that druid table it also says how many spell slots that you have at each level as well now the casting these spells once again you got to use a spell slot so you have two spell slots you can only cast the spell two times then you got to take the appropriate rest you know for your character to actually get that spell slot back and you can prepare your this list of druid spells available to you beforehand so you're ready to go okay this is my list this is what i can cast and the spells that you're going to be doing must be of a level of which you have spell slots so you can't really be like a level two druid be trying to cast like a third fourth fifth level spell so for example if you're a third level spell you can have like four first levels and two second level spell slots with a wisdom score of 16 your prepared spell list can include six spells first or second level in any combination if you prepare like say the first level spell cast like cure wounds you can cast it using a first or second level slot so you can actually say hey i have my second spell slot here i want to cast this first level spell but at second level it doesn't remove it from your list of prepared spells but it will use up that spell slot and you can also change the list of prepared spells that you can sit there and say okay i'm gonna take this off of my list of ones i've prepared ready to cast i'm gonna put this one in its place when you do a long rest and preparing that list of druid spells 
normally you can work out with your DM, but it requires time of like prayer, meditation, something like that. Uh, and if it's a time frame of at least one minute per spell level. And again, this is all right there in the player's handbook, but you can work it out with your DM of, hey, you know, we just took a long rest. You know, I was, you know, for about four hours of it, I was doing the meditation thing, which can still usually count towards that. I'm changing out the spells so I can have these ready to go. And usually they're pretty flexible and work with you, but double check with them, see how they want to work it. Now your spellcasting ability for your druid is going to be your wisdom score. Okay, so there's a wisdom modifier and everything. So you have your spell save DC. So this thing says, hey, you cast a spell, they have to meet or beat this DC. Your spell DC is eight, plus any proficiency bonus you, you have overall, plus your wisdom modifier. So say your proficiency bonus is two, your wisdom modifier is two, then your spell save DC would then be eight plus two plus two, which simple math equals out to 12. Now your spell attack modifier, so if you're doing a ranged spell attack and it's gonna be doing your attack modifier there, it's your proficiency bonus plus your wisdom modifier. So again, if that's plus two and plus two, your attack modifier then would be plus four. Now, if you wanna do ritual casting, you can do that if the spell actually has that tag on there, just like the other guys can too, and it will not be using up a spell slot, but it usually takes a time frame on there as well. That's the one thing you gotta look at. Sometimes it'll say you can ritual cast this, but it'll take five minutes, 10 minutes. So it's not actually like usually five, 10 minutes of actual real time, but it's five, 10 minutes of game time. So if you're in combat, usually not a good idea to try doing a ritual casting unless it's a quick ritual casting. Because remember one minute of game time is usually like 10 rounds of combat. So it's, you know, a little of a interesting way of looking at things there. Something to keep an eye on. And you also have to have your spellcasting focus as well, as a side note here. Um, usually it'll be some special thing that you have, like maybe a piece of um, a special tree from where your hometown was. Something, it's some, something that you have that's your spellcasting focus for those spells. And now we get into, once again, more of the hands-on type characters. We're now getting into the fighter class. This is another one that's meant to be one that can actually take a punch and keep going pretty nicely because this one uses a d10 for their hit points. And that first level, you're at 10 plus your constitution modifier. And at a higher levels, once again, 10 plus your, your d10 plus your constitution modifier, or take the average of six plus your constitution modifier. Now your proficiency as the fighter, you're proficient in all armor and shields, but usually you actually will have a uh, disadvantage when it comes to like stealth and things like that in a lot of that armor because you know you're clinking you're clanking you're jingle jangling around so stealth usually not your best thing and for weapons usually it's the simple weapons the martial weapons is what you're proficient in and you're usually not proficient in any tools but here's what comes in pretty good though your saving throws strength and constitution you know you're proficient in those ones there and you can pick two skills to be proficient in like acrobatics animal handling athletics History, insight, intimidation, because, you know, big burly fighter here. Perception and survival. Just remember, the fighter is pretty much somebody who was a soldier. They're somebody who was out on the battlefield. They were able to pay paying attention to a lot of what's going on while they're fighting. So they have these kind of things here to actually help them out in the battle, help them out in the fight. And that's what plays into your character as well. And you can make this character however you want it to be. That's usually kind of the background of one of these types of classes though. Now for your starting equipment, if you choose to go that route, 
usually start off with like chainmail or leather armor, longbow, and, you know, and of course arrows to go with it. Uh, you have a martial weapon and a shield, or two martial weapons, a light crossbow and 20 bolts, or two hand axes. I'm fond of the hand axes, but then, you know, I said the campaign I'm doing right now at this point in time of this recording, half-orc barbarian, you know, hitting the, these things with that wonderful hand axe. And then you also usually start off with like a dungeoneer's pack or an explorer's pack, and later on we'll get into what all these different little uh, packs actually are, you know, We'll explain as much as we can about these things. Now, for a fighter, you also get to adopt a particular style of fighting. And there's a few different options, like there's archery, there's defense, there's dueling, there's great weapon fighting, protection, uh, two-weapon fighting, second wind, and each one of these things gives you different bonuses. If you choose to go the archery route, you gain a plus two on attack rolls that you make with a ranged weapon. So if you go the archery style, you get that longbow out, you're going to fire, you can add a plus two bonus to that attack roll. If you're a defense fighter, then you get to have a plus one bonus to your AC while you're wearing armor. If you're a dueling fighter, then when you have a melee weapon in your hand and no other weapons, you can then gain a plus two bonus to your damage rolls. For great weapon fighting, when you roll a one or a two on a damage die for an attack that you just made with a melee weapon that you're wielding with two hands, you can then re-roll that die, but you must use the new roll, even if it's a one or a two. No matter what, that's what you gotta use. And the weapon that you're using must have the two-handed or versatile property, so you can actually use this. If, say you're using a one-handed weapon, but you're saying, oh yeah, but I'm using it two-handed. Nope, doesn't count. Has to be two-handed or be labeled as being versatile. Now, if you're a protection fighter, I've actually seen this one in use, it's actually a pretty cool thing. When a creature you see attacks a target other than you, it's within five feet of you. You can use your reaction to impose disadvantage on the attack roll, but you have to be wearing a shield. So you're seeing a creature attack your friend, then you can actually sit there and say, nope, you have disadvantage on that roll because you're using your protection fighter ability. But again, you have to have that shield equipped in, the, in order to use this. Otherwise, you can't do it. That's one of the great things about some of these characters, though, is you, know, it has, you have this great ability, but you gotta look at that but every time. Now, if you do two-weapon fighting, then when you're engaged in two-weapon fighting, you can add your ability modifier to the damage of the second attack. That's the great thing about the, the two-weapon fighting fighting style. And then second wind. You have a limited well of stamina that you can draw on to protect yourself from harm. On your turn, you can use a bonus action to use the second wind ability and gain hit points back, equal to a d10 roll plus your fighter level. So say you're a second level fighter and you roll it, you're getting at least three hit points back, even if you roll a one, because it's just one plus two. But at highest point there, as a second level fighter, you can gain 12 HP back, which can help out really good in a pinch. But once you use that feature, you need to finish either a short or a long rest before you can use it again. So it's like a one-time deal. Like, okay, I gotta get this thing done. I gotta get this monster beat. Second wind, get the hit points back get in and do it and continue on to another one of our wonderful martial trying to make a good hit and knock him down type fighters here we're actually getting into the class of the monk now this one they're a little bit more on what's considered the squishy side of things though you have a d8 used for your hit points per level so same as all the other guys to start off with your first level it's eight plus your constitution modifier 
and then every level after that it's eight or the there's a d8 or the average of five plus your constitution modifier you're not proficient in armor but you get proficiencies in simple weapons and short swords and for tools you can usually choose between an artisan tool or one musical instrument now your saving throws because of your being a monk you have saving throw in dexterity and strength for your proficiencies there and for skills you can choose two from acrobatics athletics history insight religion stealth because with the monks they've been usually you know cloistered for a bit training learning how to fight learning all this stuff but they've also been studying usually a little bit more scholarly hence the athletic you know the athletics and acrobatics and stealth for the training but then the history insight and religion for the scholarly side now if you choose to do starting equipment you get a short sword or any simple weapon then you get to choose dungeoneer's pack or explorer's pack 10 darts and now for the wonderful bonus little features you can choose from here and those things, extra things you get you get unarmored defense so beginning at first level while you're wearing no armor and not wearing a shield your ac equals 10 plus your dex modifier plus your wisdom modifier similar to the barbarian with their unarmored defense a little bit different on things you add up there so say your dex modifier is three and your wisdom modifier is two then your starting ac there with wearing no armor and no shield would be 15. so pretty good little thing now you're also a martial arts type class right here so at first level you pr your practice of martial arts gives you a mastery of different combat styles that use unarmed strikes and monk weapons that's like the short swords simple melee weapons basically things that don't, aren't heavy and don't take uh two hands and you gain you know different benefits while using these unarmed strikes and wielding only monk type weapons and they're not wearing armor or wielding a shield that's the caveat in here as well no armor no shield only monk weapons or unarmed but you can use your dexterity instead of strength for an attack and damage rolls for your unarmed strikes and monk weapons. And you can roll a d4 in place of the normal damage of your unarmed strike or monk weapon. This die changes as you gain monk levels though. And if you actually go into the uh, table that talks about all the uh, uh, different martial arts for the monk inside the player's handbook, it'll actually tell you each die at what level that it gets changed. And when you use the attack option with an, an uh, unarmed strike, or a monk weapon on your turn, you can make one unarmed strike as a bonus action. So you attack once and then say, okay, bonus action, I'm going to unarmed strike again. So you get those two attacks each turn. You know, for a different example here, you attack with a quarterstaff, bonus action, unarmed strike. As long as you're using a monk weapon or it's an unarmed strike for your first attack. Now, you only get to use one bonus action per round though, unless you know something specifically says you can take an extra bonus action. So otherwise it's just the one attack and the one bonus. Now, certain monasteries also use specialized forms of monk weapons. So you can actually look inside there in, when you're creating your monk and see what these different uh, monk weapons could be based on the monastery. For example, you might use a club that is two lengths of wood connected by a short chain, you know, commonly called like a, you know, nunchuck, basically. The, or you might have uh, a sickle with a shorter, straighter blade, usually called like a comma. And whatever name you use for a monk weapon, you can you know go into the chapter five you know area of the player's handbook under equipment and use some of the game statistics in there. You know so you can actually you know almost like homebrew your own weapon 
and just say, you know, it came from this monastery type thing. Now, here's where it gets to be fun with the monk. Starting at second level, your training that you have has allowed you to harness a mysterious energy called key. So you start getting key points. Kind of similar to spell slots, you know, and also you know, something similar to like the sorcerer's points. You know, you have a certain number of key points that you can use and your monk level determines the number that you have. And you use these to enable to use various key features. It's key as in K-I, not K-E-Y. Now you have three such features that you start off with. You have the flurry of blows, Haitian defense, and step of the wind. And as you go higher in levels, you'll get more key features, but these are the ones you usually start off with at that level two. Now when you spend a key point, just like a spell slot, just like, you know, that uh, thing we just talked about with the fighter of the uh, getting the hit points back, you'll get your key points back after doing a short or long rest and you have to spend at least 30 minutes of the rest meditating. So basically you're going to say, okay, I'm going to take my short rest and I'm going to spend the first 30 minutes meditating so I can get my key points back. Some DMs require you to actually state this, some don't. Make sure you talk to your DM beforehand so you know exactly how to do this. Now, some of these key features require your target to make a saving throw. Now, if they do need to make a saving throw, then your key save DC is going to be 8, plus any proficiency bonus, plus your wisdom modifier. So proficiency is plus 2, wisdom is plus 2, the save DC is 10. That's just an example. Your character may be different, depends on what number you put into each one of the stat blocks there. Now, for these keys here, you have... Starting off with a flurry of blows. Immediately after you take the attack action on your turn, you can spend a key point to make two unarmed strikes as a bonus action. Remember how I said you only have one bonus action? Like attack, then attack again. If you do this one with the key point, you get two unarmed strikes on them at that point. Now, if you have the patient defense one that you use, you can spend a key point to take the dodge action as a bonus action on your turn. Normally, you have to sit there and say, my whole action is going to be the dodge action. You do this one. You can say, okay, I'm going to attack. Then use my one key point to now take the dodge action as a bonus action. Which means you can then get a little bit of an advantage if something comes to attack you. Because then they usually have to then roll their attack at disadvantage. So that basically it's like your character is trying to dodge out of the way of that attack. Now if you do step of the wind, then you can spend a key point to take the disengage or dash action as a bonus action, and your jump distance is doubled for the turn. So you do step of the wind, you say, okay, I'm going to you know, attack, and I'm gonna use a key point to do step of the wind to then disengage, so then you're not engaged in that fight anymore. It's like you're taking a step back away from the fight. Or you say, I'm going to then do this to dash, so then you can actually do double of your movement. So you can actually go, instead of saying 30 feet, you can now go 60 feet away. It does not stop an attack of opportunity, though, so they can still possibly do that on you, but you can move away and then move out of range of further attacks, possibly with that one. Now, you also have unarmored movement with a monk. So starting at second level, your speed increases by 10 feet while you're not wearing armor or wielding a shield. And this bonus here, it increases when you get to the different levels as well. So, say you don't have armor on, no shield, instead of being a 30-foot movement, get a second level, now you're up to 40 feet of movement per turn during combat. And then at ninth level, here's where it gets kind of cool. I know we we're going to talk about only first level stuff. I had to add this in here. Ninth level thing. This is actually really cool. You gain the ability to move along vertical surfaces 
and across liquids as on your turn without falling during the move. You can actually like run up a wall. You can do running across like, you know, the water there. Pretty much you're doing crouching tiger, hidden dragon type stuff right there. It is, it just looks really cool when you're doing that. And we have time for one more that we're gonna do right here before we actually go on to our question and answer and then game time for this session here. We're gonna talk real quick about the Paladin. Uh, Paladin is another one that's actually meant to be like a heavy hitter type uh, character here. You have a D10 for your hit points, and we've already gone over how the hit points work. Now you're for your proficiencies, you're proficient in all armor and shields. But for weapons, it's only the simple weapons and martial weapons. And you actually look at the weapons list like in the equipment area in the player's handbook, it'll sit there and say martial, it'll say simple, it'll say two-handed, it'll say all that right there in that list for each weapon. You're usually not proficient in any tools and your saving throws, it's going to be the Wisdom and Charisma. And for your skills, you can choose two. Athletics, Insight, Intimidation, Medicine, Persuasion, and Religion. Normally, a Paladin is one that had been in for uh, protecting uh, people. And they were somebody who's been training to be in a, a military, but they actually have chosen to follow an oath and swear an oath to usually some higher deity. So that's why they have the Religion in there, as well as like the Medicine in there as well, but they're usually a little bit bigger, beefier, you know, further can take a hit and give a hit, hence the athletics, insight, uh, intimidation, and persuasion. Now, for your starting equipment, if you choose to go that route, you got a martial weapon and a shield, or two martial weapons, five javelins, or a simple melee weapon, a priest pack or explorer's pack, chain mail, and a holy symbol. Now, the holy symbol does come in handy and is needed for some things later on, and we'll get into that. Now, for the paladin, the presence of strong evil registers on your senses like a noxious odor because you have divine sense. Powerful good rings like heavenly music in your ears. So as an action, you can open your awareness to detect these things. And until the end of your next turn, you know the location of any celestial, fiend, or undead within 60 feet that's not behind like total cover. And you know the type of it. Like you'll know, okay, there is a you know undead sitting over there you know, under this you know, behind this half open door, behind that window things like that but you're not gonna know its identity like say okay i know there's a vampire over there but you're not gonna know that it's strahd you're just gonna know it's an undead vampire it's an it's undead it's this and within that same radius you can also detect the presence of any place or object that's been consecrated or desecrated now you can use this feature right here only a certain number of times it's one plus your charisma modifier and when you finish a long rest you get those uses back so say your, your charisma modifier is a two one plus a two math three you can use up to three times between each long rest now you're also a healer for the group as well you can do what's called lay on hands so pretty much what that is is you lay your hands on somebody and you actually have a pool of healing power that you can pull from that replenishes every time you take a long rest and you can then restore hit points equal to your paladin level times five. So say you are a second level paladin, you can regain up to 10 hit points on whoever you touch. So you can lay your hands on a friend or you can lay hands on yourself and you can use it as an action. So if you're in combat, that would be your whole action. So you can go, you touch a creature, you draw on the power from that pool and restore a number of hit points to that creature up to the maximum. You decide how many you're gonna give them. Alternatively, you can spend five of those hit points from your pool to, of healing to cure the target of a disease 
or neutralize one poison affecting it. So say they're poisoned, you use five of those hit points, boom, poison cured. And you can cure multiple diseases, neutralize multiple poisons, but you have to do the hit points separate. So say they have two poisons affect them, there's 10 hit points used right there. Now, this whole lay on hands thing does not affect undead and does not affect constructs. It's only on those things that are living. Now, as a paladin, you can adopt a fighting style just like with the fighter. So there's defense, there's dueling, there's great weapon fighting, protection, and we already went over those with the fighter, but then you also get into paladin spellcasting. So this is all at the second level side of things, but second level spell casting you have learned to draw on that divine magic through meditation and prayer and cast spells as the cleric does and same place for all the other spells in the player's handbook chapter 10 for the rules 11 for your paladin spell list and on there it'll show you all the different spells that you can do and all the different rules still apply just like everything that uh, we've talked about with all the different spells for the other guys so far but you guys remember it's going to be your charisma score that you're using for everything here. So your charisma score is the one that's actually gonna be your spell save DC, your spell attack modifier, everything goes with that. And this is also where your spell casting focus comes in. That's your holy symbol that you got earlier on when you picked up all of your tools and everything. So that's our covering of the classes for today. And between last session of recording this and this one, we actually have not received any new questions. It's actually been a couple of repeats of old ones that I've just pointed people back at the other podcasts we've recorded so far. So without further ado, we're jumping right on in to tonight's game time. Alrighty, welcome back to the Waiting Horn Tavern and the Crypt, where last time you had Christopher Burke and Rupert Ashwick penetrating into the crypt and coming across Mr. Napoleon Bony Pants and dealing him a decisive blow, followed by a search through a few more rooms of the crypt until they encountered a hellhound, which, thankfully, they were able to dispatch without too much effort. But at this point, Rupert is not feeling all that well. He is actually pretty badly hurt, but Christopher is actually still up on his feet and doing pretty darn good. And we can catch up with our heroes at the end of a long T-shaped hallway. Now, you guys at the end of this hallway here, it's about 50 feet long. And down on the T end, you know, it's going to be roughly about 30 feet long on that end. <laughs> so as you look around the room, leading down towards the far end of the hallway, you see faint tracks on those stone tiles. And what it is that you guys do? Hmm. Ah, well, I'd say we have to go and take a look at these tracks and see if they go anywhere. Okay, so you're going to examine those footprints? Of course I am. Okay, so you examine those tracks. They're pretty self-evident for what they are. You can tell that this is the floor area where the Gravehound has been pacing. And you get the feeling, based on how these tr prints are looking on the floor, that this creature has been there. Quite a long time. Well, I'm gonna follow the tracks down, get to the end of the hallway here. Okay, do you follow him, uh, Christopher? Yes. And I'm going to, well, once I come 40 feet, I'm going to pull out my crossbow. What is it with you and always wanting to have that crossbow out? Always 
preparing for the worst. There's something else in here. We would have seen it or heard it. Um, you never know. Yeah, you might be right. Yeah. So, when you get down to the end of the hallway, though, and you look off to the left-hand side, mm-hmm. and you see a collapsed piece of the corridor's roof that's actually blocking off a good chunk of that room from what you can see just cursory glance. And then off to the right, you see a reinforced wooden door. Hmm. That door could be leading to some interesting areas, but don't quite like how it's been reinforced. Means they might be trying to keep something in. Hmm. Whatever's in there, I'm gonna be prepared. Well, I think I wanna check out this piece of the roof over here. Okay. And, and while you're doing that, um, I'm going to go listen to that door over there. Okay. Well, first off, Rupert, go ahead and give me a investigation check over there for that door. All right. It's gonna be a nine plus three. Good old twelve. Uh, nothing really appears out of the ordinary at all. You know, just you see the, the roof collapsed and you know the debris on the ground and dirt everywhere. Now you're going to go over and take a look at that door, Christopher. Yes. So when you get over to that door, mm-hmm. you you can see that it's been reinforced. So it's a wooden door, but it has metal that's around there. It has other wooden cross braces, so it's been pretty strongly reinforced, so that things can't really you know break through it too easily. So what do you do? I listen. You listen? Mm-hmm. You can't really hear anything on the other side of it at all. It's a pretty thick door. So I'm going to see if it's trapped. Okay, so you want to see if it's trapped, eh? Yeah. So go ahead and roll me a perception check. That would be a 13. That would be a 14. Okay, so 13 plus 1. And 14? you can tell that this door is definitely not trapped. Okay, so um, I'm going to um, try to hear something. I'm going to try and hear something faint, like faint footsteps or something. Door's too thick. You can't hear anything through the, this locked, reinforced door. Locked? Um, uh, so locked, how, how thick is this door? It's a thick, wooden, reinforced door. Okay. I forget how thick this door is. I'm going to Try to unlock it. Okay. All right, Rupert, go ahead and give ahead, me Rupert. a sleight of hand check to see how well you do at unlocking this door. All right, that's 14 plus 4, that's 18. All right, success. You have unlocked this door. Okay, I'm going to slowly push open this door to move into the next room. Okay, so you slowly push open this door and you enter what appears to be a large octagonal room with a musky smell to it. And as you look inside, you see a pile of bone and ash, a workbench, as well as you know various tools and things scattered around on the bench. There's a coffin off to one side, a wooden door on the far end of the room, off to one side there, and you have the crematorium for a furnace. Oh, let me go see and... See what's up with that uh, pile of bones and ash. Okay, there's a small pile of bones that you know, appears to have been removed from that furnace a long time ago. But go ahead, give me a perception check on that one real quick, just to see if you happen to notice anything there. All right. That would be a seven. 
Alright, well, the seven, you can't really tell anything that's going on there. Nothing special. Just the sight of it actually just makes you sit to the stomach and you look away. I have to admit, it would be kind of disturbing to see that. So, Christian, what do you do when you walk into that room? Um, so, I'm going to, um, check out that bones for Rupert. See if I get a high well, Rupert already checked it out. There wasn't anything really there at all. Hmm, what about that furnace? The furnace? Mm-hmm. Oh. As you peer, oh, approach the furnace, you peer inside, and almost as soon as your head enters the mouth of the furnace, a skeleton rises up from the ashes and bones on the floor inside the furnace, and you stumble back two squares of this map here, and you bump into the workbench that's behind you, and you hear a noise from the back of the room. See that the coffin that had been in the corner of the room is now open, and a second skeleton stands in front of it. So at this point in time, I need you all to roll initiative for me. Alright, I got 18. I got a 1. Ooh. Again. That's going to be a fun one for you. Yeah. Alright, in here. Alright, so first up will be Rupert. Rupert, Rupert what do you want to do? Ah, uh, well, I'm actually going to... Uh, so many, so many choices here. I think I'm gonna do guiding bolt on that skeleton that just came out of the furnace. All right, so go ahead and roll to hit that on that one. That will be an 18. Okay, that definitely hits. Go ahead and roll that damage. This one actually needs to do it in D and D Beyond here because that's gonna be 4d6. That is going to be seven radiant damage. Alrighty, so seven damage done to that one. Okay, that skeleton in front of Christopher is definitely bloodied now. That was a good hard hit on him. Okay, and I'm going to now move as far as I can against the far wall. So I'm out of range of most melee attacks from these skeletons. Alright, so now next up is going to be the skeletons. First one, which is the one right by Christopher. Is going to step up, and it is going to make a short sword attack on you, Christopher. Hey, okay. All right, that is going to be a 23. Oh, I know for sure that one hits you. Yeah, it does. How much damage? That is going to be for, ooh, eight damage on you. Oh, I'm down to four. Uh-huh. So that's going to be a nice hard hit. Now the other skeleton... The other skeleton here, it has a choice it can actually make to hit. Wants to either, who should it go for? We're gonna roll a d4 and see which one of you it goes for. It's gonna try to attack with its short bow. Please not baby. It's gonna try to go for Rupert. Rupert! Of course it does. Okay, but it only rolls a seven, so it does not hit. You better believe it doesn't hit. And it is actually, it's gonna hang out kind of where it's at because it's going to try to just take everything out from a distance which means it is now Christopher's turn now Christopher this other skeleton here it is right up on you if you try to run from it without disengaging you will be able to you know have the other skeleton take an attack of opportunity on you no so I, you either... I, I, I'm going to move my 30 feet and then I'm going to okay. fire my cross okay if you move without disengaging mm -hmm. then the skeleton will attack you why because it has an attack of opportunity when you leave its space that's around it. If you're right up next to it, you can take, you'll take that attack of opportunity. Just like if the skeleton tried to leave you, 
you could do the same thing. Hmm. So you can choose to disengage, hmm. which means that's your action, which means you cannot attack. Then you can run away to 30 feet at that point. But then you won't get attacked, but then you can't attack. So you can hmm. either attack, I'm gonna or you can disengage, then move. I'm going to move back, actually, two feet, and then I'm going to fire uh, my... I'm going to fire my crossbow at him. Alright, so you're going to fire your crossbow from pretty much right in front of him. Yeah. So, you're going to go ahead and do that attack, but you're going to do it at disadvantage. So you're going to roll that d20 two times and take the lower number. That's five. Twelve. That's five, and I don't think you have any bonus. So it's five plus two. Seven. So that does not hit. Oh, it just goes right by and and he's probably... It just goes right by. It just goes... Yep. And he's probably mad at me. So I'm going to move my 30 feet. Okay, so you you are going to move? Yeah, and and, and I'm going to go... So when you take... Right there. Okay, so when you move... to, To the door. It's going to try to attack you. Does a 13 hit? No. So it misses as it mm-hmm. tries to attack you. Mm-hmm. And you run away. You're 30 feet. You got lucky on that one. And it is now Rupert's turn. And I'm going to say to Rupert, Hey, Rupert, um, go for Skeleton 2. I, I already got him. You mean Skeleton 1 that I got? Yeah. I hit him. You missed him. I know. Oh. So. And I was right there. I am going to... Fire my crossbow at the skeleton by the furnace. Alright, so go ahead and roll the hit there. Right, that's going to be 15. Okay, 15 does hit. Go ahead and roll that damage. It's going to be 6 damage. Alright, so that actually takes that skeleton down to zero. It just takes that bolt right to the center of its head and just collapses down onto the ground. It is done and gone. It's all up to Skeleton 2. And that's exactly whose turn it is now, is Skeleton 2. Is it going to fire at Rupert because he destroyed his friend? Uh, He's actually going to take a shot at you. Oh, no. But he's going to be doing it with his short bow. I hope he misses. And that is going to be a... Ooh. What? It's going to be a 20 to hit. Not a natural 20, but a 20. Oh, come on. Won't these skeletons ever leave me alone? That's going to be six damage. Christopher is down. All right, Christopher, you are now down on the ground. I need you to roll me a death save. Okay. 15? 15. Okay, you succeed on your first one. All right, so that means, Rupert, it is now up to you. So, how do you want to attack this one? Okay, let's see here. Now, I've already cast my one Guiding Bolt spell. So, I'm going to try doing it again. Alright. Go ahead and roll to hit that one. That's going to be 14. That does, in fact, hit. Just barely, but that definitely hits. Alright, this is what we're talking about here. Roll that damage. That's going to be 15 damage. Alright, 15 radiant damage done to this thing. You hit that skeleton square in the chest with that guiding bolt. 
and the bones just fly everywhere across the room as you obliterate this skeleton into nothingness. And we are now out of initiative. So you have your partner in crime, Christopher Burke down on the floor over here. What is it that you choose to do? Go over to him, try to perform a medicine check on it. Alrighty, what is your modifier on doing that one? Even though you should actually wait for me to tell you to do it, but you know, say well, there's no modifier on that one. Okay, go ahead and roll it. We'll see what happens here. That would be a 16. All right, well with that 16, you're able to find the gushing, gaping wound on him and you're able to take care of it just enough to stabilize him. Okay, I'm stabilized so on the ground. Christopher is now stabilized on the ground. He's just chilling there unconscious still. So Rupert, what do you have in your pack? Do you have anything that could possibly help out with this? Ah, let me look, dig through here and see. Um, no, I don't have anything in here at all that could help out with this. Let me. Let me check out this room here a bit. Let me check it out. Let me check out this, you know, these skeletons here. I said they had anything on them. All right, well, you search both of them, and you find 200 gold pieces, and you find some razor scale armor. So it's not anything that you can use. You're right, there's nothing that won't do me any good. Toss on the floor next to Christopher. Maybe he can use it when he wakes up. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let, me, let me go check out that workbench real quick. Okay, go ahead and roll me a perception check for that workbench there. B is 17. Alright, on that workbench you find a coin purse with 30 gold in it. Nothing else, nothing else in that. Not really on the workbench, no. Uh, how about, you know, down and around it, down on the floor, over in, in the furnace. Uh, go ahead and roll me an investigation check for that furnace over there. That would be a 20. Okay, inside the furnace you find two potions of healing. Perfect. Take one of them and walk over to Christopher and I pour it down his throat. Okay. Now that'll be 2d4 plus 2 healing. So that's 2. That'd be 6. That's be 8 healing for Christopher over there. He is back up 8 points. Okay. I'm going to take the other one. So 2, 3. So that's 5 points for you. Okay. I'm back up to full and he's at least back up over half again. Yeah. Oh, and, and I say to, um... Rupert, hey, Rupert, what's this? What's what? The stuff right there next to me. It's some armor that I found. I don't even know what it can do. I'll yeah. just put it in my pack. Yeah, that might be... Oh, did, oh, and did you find some armor? That's I don't know. the armor you just talked about right there. Okay, I'll put it on. Well, you don't know what it does. It could be magical, it could be good, it could be bad. We don't know yet. Okay, I'll just put it on my pack for now. Okay, so now that both of you are back up again, you've searched around the room and found what you can, the only thing left is the door on the far side. It's a wooden door, you know, it's right there, it's a simple wooden door. It's not reinforced like the last one was. And I'm going to say to Rupert, hey Rupert, um, so, you want to go check out that door, or do you want me to go check out that door? I can go check it out. Okay. Oh, and try listening. First off, based on how everything else in here has some little trap or you know, oh, yeah. things spring out of it, I'm going to search it for a trap real quick. Okay. Alright, give me that. an investigation check there, Rupert. That's going to be a 12 on the die. 
which is going to also plus three, so 15. All right. You successfully found that there is no trap on this door at all. It's a simple wooden door. That is all. And you've also found out that this door is unlocked. Oh, and I'm going to say to Rupert, Hey, Rupert, listen. L- listen if you can hear something behind there. Okay, well, how about, since you're right there with them, Christopher, how would you roll me a perception check to see if you can hear anything at that door? Okay. That would be a one. Plus one, I got two. I probably don't hear anything. Your ears are clogged. You can't hear a darn thing at this door. Can I try again? No, forget try it again. Rupert just slowly pushes the door open and peers inside the next room, which this would be the burial chamber. And you have two rows of coffins and two rows of memorial urns positioned up on the east and west side of the room. The light in here is extremely dim. You can only see about 20 feet in front of you. And I'm going to say to Rupert, Rupert, close that door. You don't know what's in there. Well, there's no place else we can go. It's into this room or not. Hold on. Um, I'm going to see if if I can hear anything again. You don't hear anything inside this room. Okay. Tell I'm, you what. Do you want to be prepared? No, I'm going to reach into this room here. I'm going to touch this stone on the floor right here. And I'm going to cast light. All right. Let's uh, tell us what that's going to be right there. To do that one. Well, I touch an object that is no larger than 10 feet in any dimension, and it will shed a bright light in a 20 foot radius around that object. And be dimly in dim light for another 20 feet after that. Okay, and if I remember correctly, you can actually choose what color your pit light's gonna be. So, what color do you think that your light would be? Well, it's gonna be plain regular daylight, to be a white light. What other light would you think it would be? Okay, so what are you gonna do with this? now lit rock that you have here. Well, I'm going to take it and I'm going to toss it into the middle of the room. Alright, so with that one, that's actually going to then be able to light up a big portion of this room other than some of the alcoves that you can see on the far side of the walls that have the coffins in them. So, now that you have this room properly lit, what are you going to do? Hmm, I'm going to um, walk into this room. And and I'm gonna and I'm going to pull out my short sword and I'm gonna say to Rupert, Rupert, um, you don't know what you might come across, so yeah, that's why I'm prepared. Okay, so how far into the room do you walk? Um, about to where the stone is. Up to the light. Yep. Okay. Go ahead and roll me a perception check. Eight. That would be a 14 plus 1. That would be a 15 for my perception check. So, as you're walking into this room, with your pretty decent perception check right there, you can tell there's something not quite right, right when you walk into this room. Okay, I'm going to head out of this room. So you have to turn right around and head back out? Yep, and head out into that hallway and try to break this wall down. You're not going to break a wall down. The walls are too thick. And, and I'm just going, I'm going to... to... I'm going to go in and investigate. Because I can see him going in the back and back out. Isn't I can see there's nothing. You know, no hideous monsters. And, 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 like and, and, and I'm going to say to Rupert, Rupert, there's something not quite right in there, so I'm not sure we should go in there. 
Well, I just got myself a 23 on that investigation. All right. So I'm about to ask for the investigation check, but Rupert, you beat me to it. Stop it next time. I'll tell you what to do. Don't worry. Ah, bah. We're of one mind. It's all good. Okay, so with that, you actually are able to see about 20 feet into the room a thin wire going straight across the floor. Ah, somebody booby-trapped this room. But how far up off the floor is that wire? It's just a couple of inches off the floor. Just perfect height to hide in the shadows of a dimly lit room and, you know, waiting for somebody to step on it. Alright, I want to try to see if I can figure out how to disable this trap. Okay, so go ahead and roll me a sleight of hand check then. Ready? That's going to be 23. Alright, that is going to be a success. So you have successfully disabled the magical crossbow turret that was set up in this room. And the crossbows, you can see after you disable it, they were located in you know, crevices on the walls, you know, right about 30, you know, 15 to, to, you know, to 30 feet into the room, just in various locations. All right, we should be safe to enter now. And I'm going to say to Rupert, hey Rupert, um, I'm going to um, see if there's like um, anything strange about this room. Well, as you walk into the room, you see various tools laying on the floor, and you know, right along the sides of the room, you see uh, cremation urn compartments up on pillars, and you see sarcophagi just leaned up against the walls inside of alcoves on both sides of the room. Okay. And on the far side, straight ahead of you, is a double reinforced wooden door. And, and, and I am going to, um, um, check out this door. You're going to go straight to the door and check it out? Yep. And I'm going to, so am I going to use my perception or my investigation or any check? Well, how about you wait for me to tell you what it's going to be? Mm-hmm. So for that door there, uh-huh. you see that it is a, like said, a double reinforced wooden door. And you notice that on the wall, on either side of the door, there's two small recesses in the stone, both about the same size. Hmm. I'm not going to try to um, do anything with that door, and I'm going to walk out. And, and I'm going to tell Rupert, hey Rupert, um, do you want to go check out that door and see what those thingies are on the, on the sides of the door? Don't blame me if, if you get hurt. Don't blame me. And I'm going to tell Rupert, be careful. Okay. So, Rupert, you want to go check out the uh, you know, the door here? Yeah, so I'm going to take a look at it and see what I can what I can see. Okay. So, if you will roll me an investigation check real quick. Uh, it's going to be a 13. Okay, with a 13, you see that the two recesses in the door... They appear to be meant for some sort of a key to go into them. It's not any key that you're, you know, that you're used to. So I'm going, going to, um... Oh. Hmm, what am I going to say to Rupert? What about this door here? Can I try to unlock it? You could try, but I'll tell you right now, you need to have these two keys. Hmm, not everything in this place has been as it seemed so far. Let me go ahead and 
Try an arcana check. Just to see if I'm able to tell us something magical going on in this place. Okay, go ahead and roll me that arcana check then. Alright, that's going to be 21. Alright, you can tell that there's a couple of objects in this room that are emitting a very weak aura. Then you one that also has a small aura around it as well. And I'm going to say to Rupert, um, I'm going to stay out here just in case anything bad ha- happens in there. If something bad happen- happens in there, run out and close the doors behind you, okay? Oh, fine then. I want to go check out these objects that I saw that have the, the weak and small aura. Alright, so it's along the wall of the urns. Oh, maybe we're going to take a look at each one. Okay, go ahead and... Roll me an investigation then for that one. That'll be a 17. Alright, so you go through each one of the urns along the wall, and inside one of the compartments, underneath a pile of cremated human remains, you find a rune key. Uh, That's interesting. And as you pull it out, arcane characters scatter across its surface, so you can tell it's definitely a quite magical thing that you just found. Okay, let me go check the next one then. Okay, this is on the other row of the urns. Now these ones here, they look like they've been ransacked by grave robbers and they have ashes and remains that are they're piled up against the wall there. So, but go ahead and give me a, another investigation check. Actually, I'm gonna give this one a perception, just for giggles. Uh, of course, you gotta take the one that takes doesn't have any bonuses on it. Be a 20. Okay, natural 20 on that one. So, you successfully go through and you happen to find a ring amongst these ashes. It has a very small but brilliantly cut blue diamond into it. And I'm going to say to Rupert, Rupert, don't touch it. You don't know what it does. I've already touched it. It's in my hand. So, what are you going to do with it, Rupert? I want to take it and just put it in my pocket. Put it right in my pouch. Okay, so the other object here, it's on the next set of urns, but all the plaques on this row on the wall have been removed. Well, I'm going to go and I'm going to start searching through them again, just like I did the last ones. Okay, and your perception is still pretty darn high from the last thing you just did. Then inside one of those compartments, you find another room key where the instant you pull it out, once again, our canyon characters scatter across the surface. So, you've now found two keys in this room. So, what are you guys going to do now? Um, I'm going to tell Rupert, Hey Rupert, um, those might be the keys that unlock that door. Go put them in, turn, and if you can turn them, turn them, and then run, close the doors behind you, and see if anything bad happens. Well, or good happens. Well, first off, I want to check out these sarcophaguses. Maybe we can find something else that's in here as well. And I'm going to say, okay. Okay, so if as you're going, so, so going on these I'm lines still. of sarcophaguses here, go ahead and give me an investigation check. Investigation. So, and Christopher, are you going to help him out at all in this one? Yeah, I'm going to help. Okay, so go ahead and roll it with advantage there, Rupert. Ah, good for that advantage. Must be rolling good tonight. I got myself another 20. 
And I'm going to roll okay. two to add to his new. Okay. So, you go along the rows of sarcophaguses and you come across one where a wooden beam supporting the roof has collapsed down onto it and it's crushed the stone lid. So you can't open it, but you can see there's just a little bit of a opening down in the bottom, down by the feet. And as you push away some of the rubble at the front of the sarcophagus, you find a name plaque. It reads Corella Dryadson. And from what you can see, see the pieces that have broken off from the sides of the sarcophagus, there's a layer of old decomposed roses. And as you touch them, they're gray and they crumble in your hands. But you also find an old letter. Pull it out and read it. So, you know, so this old letter, it's tattered and it's falling apart. The words, without you, my heart withers, are written across the front of it. The seal that once closed this letter is no longer in place. You carefully remove the letter from inside the envelope. Although the ink has faded severely, you can still manage to read it. The letter is written by Corella Dryadson. She talks about how she cannot live without her partner, Adadak Swordhand, and how they had to keep their loves a secret, as he was a nobleman and could not be seen with a peasant girl. She says that he has been buried here, and she is placed within his casket. The first gift she received from him, a magic ring wrapped in silk. She explains how she used to stare at the sparkling blue diamond set into a silver ring for hours as it reminded her of him. You believe that from the sounds of the letter that she did not long la- live long after that. So, what do you do? I head over to um, Rupert and say, Hey Rupert, um, how about we bring that letter and see if it might be something we could actually use? Let me something we can use. You know, this story here, it actually sounds familiar. It's something I've heard before right here in this town. All right, so Rupert, go ahead and roll me a history check real quick. See if you can actually draw up any remembrance of this from your memory at all. All right, that's going to be a seven. All right, well, you recall reading about Corella and some of the rumors surrounding her death, but you can't quite remember any details about it. And I'm gonna tell Rupert, hey Rupert, um. I think um, I remember something. I can't tell what I remembered, but it might be some. It might be something about Corella. Okay. Well, so you take the letter and you put it away into your pouch. And what are you gonna do now? Well, we have these two room keys now. And I bet you that's what we need for that door. Okay. So I walk over to the door and I put key in each of the sockets on the door. Okay, as you do so, they both glow brightly and the magical lock on the door unlatches and the door is now open and you can move on to the next area when ready. And I'm gonna tell Rupert, hey Rupert, um, I think I remember battery, better of what I have heard. Hmm. Uh, I, it just flew out of my head. Um, now I can't remember anything. Okay, well before you guys move into the next room, that is actually where we're going to end tonight's session. So I want to thank everybody for having joined us. I hope you guys are enjoying this run through the crypt with Christopher and Rupert. Make sure you tune in again next week for more 
Dungeons and Dragons talk and fun. See you next time. Bye.